strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Come in, have a seat. As uh, always, I'd like to introduce the gentleman to my right, my valet, Wilkinson. He uh, assists in our little show by uh, pulling reference material from our shelves and uh, reading for us um, any passages that need quoting. Pleased to meet you. So, uh, to jump right in, we initiated a mailbag segment last show, so you can uh, send in questions for me to answer on air, so to speak, uh, via the website. Uh, The details are all there. We're still sort of uh, working it out, so... I guess we'll just uh, give this a uh, second uh, go. Mailbag. Reaching into the mailbag uh, to select the letter, this one. You read it, Wilkinson. Certainly. Dear Mr. Ridenour and Mr. Wilkinson, (laughs) I've really been enjoying the shows. I'm a student and haven't been able to listen lately till I... biography, get to the question. Certainly. Uh, Let's see. Uh, I, I hope you will consider this a single question, even though it has two parts. Okay. Every show you welcome in someone, telling them to have a seat. Do you actually have a guest sitting there? If so, why do we never hear them speak? Insurance reasons. It's actually part of the waiver they sign. A chattering guest is unpredictable. As is a drunk guest, which we quickly learned. Our very first episode, I thought I could serve cognac and he got out of control and uh, became a danger. He was just a bit talkative when it came time to leave. He was a danger to my cognac. I had to call the police to remove him. I don't mean to argue, sir, but he actually was outside and halfway to the gate by the time you called. I felt terrible detaining him just so the police could ask him to leave. They gave him a comfortable ride home. I'm sure it made a good story down at the bar. It was humiliating to him. My own uncle. I thought he was your father. No, you've met my father several times. Well, the point is, I thought he was someone we could trust. He never spoke to me after that. So is that the question? Oh, no. Uh, There's this second part. If you have a real guest, how do you select the guest? If you want to involve your audience, like you've said, maybe you could make the process more transparent, or have a contest or sell sweepstakes tickets, giving folks a shot at a seat. Sell tickets? Maybe we could do a car wash for money and shake poster board signs at cars passing by. 
Look, the point is, admitting someone to the study is a complicated process. It has to be someone we can trust, and there's the privacy issue. I have to pick them up elsewhere and blindfold them for the drive. So it's not something we always do. The short answer is sometimes there's a guest and sometimes not, but I say the welcome line anyway. You'll have to just embrace the mystery. It'll make you stronger. Um, I'm going to skip the musical outro now because we've squandered so much time on this question or questions. Uh, no more multiple part questions, Wilkinson? Of course, sir. So, episode 24, Possessed Nuns and Holy Demoniacs. So, I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the uh, intertwining of horror and folklore in a uh, historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Uh, Bone and Sickle is made possible exclusively through the generosity of our Patreon donors, and uh, I'll have more detail on all that at the end of the show. As uh, Holy Week is upon us, and as a follow-up to our previous uh, Ghastly Saint Stories episode, we're having another look at Catholic lore this time. Since uh, we'll be featuring religious accounts of the uh, supernatural, I'll um, again remind listeners that the uh, emphasis of our show is on folklore and uh, history as storytelling, so I uh, won't be uh, providing the uh, skeptical counter-arguments to everything. There are plenty of good podcasts and other sources uh, providing that elsewhere. All stigmatics suffer the most intense demonic attacks. While there may be little else to recommend the 1999 horror film Stigmata, this uh, line uttered by... Uh, Gabriel Byrne, as a uh, Vatican investigator, nicely evokes the sort of um, characters we'll be looking at in this show. Uh, those who seem at once uh, chosen and abandoned by God. The kingdom of God is inside you. Our first is a stigmatic, Maria Theresia von Mel, a South Tyrolean uh, ecstatic and contemporary to Maria Lazzari, who lived not 25 miles away. Uh, that would be the uh, woman exhibiting the peculiar mask of dried blood in her last show. Before uh, von Merle's death in uh, 1868, she garnered quite a reputation, drawing as many as uh, 40,000 visitors to her home in the tiny village of Carlton in a single summer. The typical of many stigmatics, much of her life was spent in uh, bedridden bouts of difficult to distinguish ecstasies and agonies. Von Merle's uh, spiritual life was overseen by a father, Johannes Sawyer, who, like the uh, Vatican inspector from the film, saw the holy and the devilish simultaneously at work in his uh, visionary charge. For uh, one example of the diabolical torment she suffered, uh, I have a 1845 edition of Dublin University magazine, which it's reported that she vomited pins, needles, splinters of glass, horsehair, 
nails of all descriptions, as well as broken knitting needles and bits of bone. Nor did those objects come from her mouth only, but sometimes presented themselves at different parts of the head, and were with difficulty drawn out by her confessor. What was strange was that all these objects left no wounds. The skin closed after them, as if they had been mere drops of sweat. Diabolical, yes, but the process of her beatification, the first step to sainthood, is currently underway. A more famous uh, 16th century personage bearing diabolical stigmata would be Magdalena de la Cruz, uh, abbess of the uh, Franciscan convent of uh, Santa Isabella de los Angeles outside Cordoba. For nearly 40 years, she lived an outwardly saintly life characterized by mystical happenings, including the periodic appearance of stigmata and sweats of blood. Religious historian Richard Robert, in his 1857 book, Phantasmata, catalogued some of these miracles. She had been elevated in the air the height of a human being. She had passed without impediment through a stone wall. She had been ministered to by angels. Her hair had marvelously grown all of a sudden so as to cover her entire person and shrunk again to its usual proper size and quantity. She fell into trances and had extraordinary visions, seeing into things and places that were far distant and into events yet unborn in the womb of time. Mariners witnessed her appearing amidst storms at sea where she calmed the waters or sighted her in the rigging of their ships. Wrapped in living flames. Her blessings were sought out by Queen Isabel of Spain and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Now all of this began at the tender age of five when young Magdalena was inspired during a vision of the crucifixion to imitate the Savior attempting, unsuccessfully, to nail herself to a wall, resulting in a fall which broke two ribs. She seemed destined for sainthood. Entering the convent at 17, she quickly became abbess. Soon, she was driving the sisters to follow an extraordinary regimen of self-denial and mortification. She encouraged use of sillices, those uh, barbed belts we talked about in the last show, and replaced the usual whips used in mortification with ones with metal-tipped thongs. Some of the sisters under her direction donned crowns of thorns, and others were ordered to crawl through the refectory, making the sign of the cross with their tongue on the shoes of each nun present. And despite or because of all this, she was twice re-elected abbess. A turning point in her reputation came with a particularly incredible claim, equating herself with the Blessed Virgin, as explained in the 1890 book by Henry Lee, The Religious History of Spain Connected with the Inquisition. On the night of the Feast of the Conception, December 8th, her belly began to swell and so remained until the nativity, when at midnight the tumescence disappeared and she held the Christ child in her arms. 
Some of the sisters had doubts about this, and the baby produced mysteriously disappeared after Christmas Day. Saint Ignatius Loyola and Blessed Juan of Avila, confessor to Saint Teresa, expressed skepticism over these showy miracles, and by 1542, Magdalena was falling from favor, badly losing when a new abbess was elected. By the next year, Magdalena was dangerously ill and, falsely believing that she was at the end, decided to come clean. And so it turned out that since the age of 12, she had been in the service of two demons by the names Balban and Patorio. Upon her confession, the diabolical stigmata were said to have forever disappeared. A three-year investigation by the Holy Office condemned her to perpetual seclusion in the convent of Santa Clara in the town of Aduhar. According to this confession, by the way, the miraculous baby born on Christmas Day had been that of the demon Balban, with whom she had slept regularly since the age of 12, and who had impregnated her that Christmas in the form of a monstrous caterpillar. curious psychological phenomenon in progress. A community of religious women in this very town were reported in the grip of a most inflammatory mass hysteria. The reference is to a 17th century outbreak in a convent in Loudon, France. In a moment, we'll look at that story and its interpretation in a 1971 film advertised in the uh, trailer clip I'm playing. But first, uh, a little background. The Ludor case was preceded by other demonic outbreaks in French convents. In 1612, groups of Ursuline nuns in uh, Aix-en-Provence and nuns of St. Brigitte in Lille both fell into respective frenzies. A reason for these sudden mass possessions seemed to be the decision to accept the testimony of the demon-possessed as somehow rational and truthful, something previously unheard of. Another is simply the outrageous ways in which these nuns acted out, including some rather incredible displays of acrobatic, sexual, and animalistic behavior. In looking at all this, I stumbled on quite a few of the latter. For instance... In 1613, in the town of Dax in southern France, a number of nuns began suddenly acting like dogs. The witch hunter Pierre de Lancre observed, It is a monstrous thing to see in church more than 40 persons all braying and barking like dogs as on nights when the moon is full. The canine symptoms, he says, spread even to residents hidden in homes the nuns simply happened to pass. In 1491, in Cambrai, France, a uh, group of nuns was reported running amok through the fields, barking like dogs, and similar outbreaks of barking occurred among the nuns in a convent in Kintorp near Strasbourg. An outbreak of uh, feline behavior is mentioned in the uh, 1835 book Epidemics of the Middle Ages. The author describes a French nun suddenly meowing like a cat. Shortly afterwards, other nuns also mewed. At last, all the nuns mewed together, every day at a certain time for several hours together. 
the whole surrounding Christian neighborhood heard, with equal chagrin and astonishment, this daily cat concert, which did not cease until the nuns were informed that a company of soldiers were placed by the police before the entrance of the convent, and that they were provided with rods and would continue whipping them until they promised not to mew anymore. It would uh, be remiss not to also mention a group of uh, sisters of St. Brigitte in Flanders who in 1551 were reportedly wandering about bleeding like sheep. And it hardly needs saying that all of this, the bleeding, the mewing, barking, was all attributed to demonic possession. The Devil's Burn. An explosive film. Absolutely brilliant. ABC TV. Superbly, frighteningly effective. Time Magazine. The Devil's is not a film for everyone. Vanessa Redgrave, Oliver Reed, in Ken Russell's film of The Devils. It seems I can't go more than a few episodes without mentioning a Ken Russell film. The Devils is probably his best, as the events upon which it was based are a good match for his uh, generally overheated and eroticizing style. The film originally earned an X rating, was banned in some countries, and has only recently been re-released with uh, excised elements restored, or as DVD extras. Uh, It was based on a 1960 play, The Devils of Loudun, by English dramatist John Whiting, which itself was based on a 1952 non-fiction book of the same name by Aldous Huxley. There's also a beautifully shot 1961 Polish film, a uh, special jury prize winner at Cannes, uh, Mother Joan of the Angels by Jerzy Kowalowicz, which very loosely follows the story, picking up where Russell, Whiting, and Huxley's accounts leave off. And speaking of Poles, there's even a 1969 opera also called The Devils of Ludon by composer Krzysztof Penderecki. Appropriately enough, a snippet of Penderecki's opera uh, ended up layered into the mix of demon voices in the film The Exorcist, while uh, three of his other compositions are used as uh, background music. Uh, It seems fitting that I use some of it here, too, also to give you a taste of his work as we go. As some of you may know, the Loudon story primarily revolves around two characters. Jean Desange, uh, Joan of the Angels, uh, Mother Superior of the Ursuline Convent, and Father Urban Garnier, the parish priest with a reputation. Uh, Jean becomes obsessed with Garnier and regards her struggle with uh, sexual desires for him as a struggle with literal demons. The disturbance is exploited by politically motivated individuals whom Garnier has personally offended or by those seeking an excuse to exert further control. Some have even suggested that Sean's condition itself was a performance engineered for these purposes, but that seems a bit tenuous to me. 
Jean, who may have been uh, placed in the convent as she was uh, hunchbacked and therefore unmarriageable, sets things in motion when she reports that Grenier has appeared in her dreams as a seducer, taking from her that which she vowed to keep for her heavenly husband, Jesus Christ. Other nuns are soon haunted by similar dreams, and spectral images of Grenier and other figures are soon seen gliding through the convent halls. These visits were understood as Grenier's efforts to recruit the sisters' souls for Satan. When the nun's confessor, Father Jean Mignon, hears of all this, he attempts an unsuccessful exorcism on what is, by now, over two dozen afflicted nuns. The diabolical manifestations, as reported, were rather spectacular. According to the 1887 volume, The History of the Devils of Loudun, the nuns suddenly passed from a state of quiet into the most terrible convulsions. They struck their chests and backs with their heads, as if they had their necks broken, and with inconceivable rapidity, they twisted their arms at the joints of their shoulder, the elbow and the wrist two or three times round. Lying on their stomachs, they joined the palms of their hands to the soles of their feet. Their faces became so frightful, one could not bear to look at them. Their eyes remained open without winking. Their tongues issued suddenly from their mouths, horribly swollen, black, hard, and covered with pimples. They threw themselves back till their heads touched their feet and walked in this position with wonderful rapidity and for a long time. There's your spider walk for you, William Friedkin, and, but wait, there's uh, more. They uttered cries so horrible and so loud that nothing like it was ever heard before. They made use of expressions so indecent as to shame the most debauched of men, while their acts, both in exposing themselves and inviting lewd behavior from those present, would have astonished the inmates at the lowest brothel in the country. Levitations and multiple voices simultaneously issuing from a single individual are also mentioned. Jean's behavior is by far the worst, characterized in the same text as... Violences, vexations, howlings, and grindings of teeth, two of which at the back of the mouth were broken. While Grenier wasn't the supernatural sex demon he was being imagined as, some of his actions uh, seemed to justify the animus others felt toward him. He was known to have kept mistress, the daughter of the king's counselor, Madeleine de Bru, and he had already fathered a child with the daughter of the king's solicitor, Philippe Trancon. What's more, he had even penned a treatise against the notion of priestly celibacy. He was arrested on charges of immorality in 1630, but uh, friends in high places were able to see him quickly return to Paris duties. With this background, however, he was uh, not eager for the attention of the raving nuns to be focused on him. He wrote to the Archbishop of Bordeaux requesting that he terminate the exorcisms. But the very powerful Cardinal Richelieu was not uh, so eager to make the situation go away for Gagné. Uh, his attention had recently been called to a satiric piece Grenier had penned attacking the cardinal, and to make matters worse, a relative of the cardinal's, a sister Claire, was a, a resident of the convent, one engaging in particularly disgraceful behavior during these episodes. Richelieu dispatched a royal commission to investigate Grenier and conduct further exorcisms. 
These exorcisms were open to the public, uh, perhaps to further shame Grenier, and were attended by some 7,000 spectators. Accounts make clear that the atmosphere was quite sexually charged, with nuns exposing themselves and directing lewd uh, gestures and sexual come-ons at priests and onlookers. Uh, Richelieu's sister, Sister Claire, was particularly aggressive in this respect, unashamedly pleasuring herself before the public. At one point in the proceedings, Jean was supposed to have uh, been impregnated by one of the invading demons and was examined by a physician who attested to the reality of her pregnancy, but the uh, mother-to-be threw up some blood and signs of the demonic pregnancy were no more. Another demon, Asmodeus, uh, said to have taken up residence within Jean's belly, was not so easily removed. Here, the exorcist uh, borrowed a popular medical procedure of the day, an enema, for which Jean had to be restrained. After the administration of a quart of holy water, the two-hour procedure was declared successful in evacuating the demon, though a host of others remained behind. All this, of course, was seen as confirmation of Grenier's guilt. In 1633, he was transferred to a prison where his naked, shaved body was subjected to the notorious search for the devil's mark and inquisitor's tortures. As the likelihood of uh, Grenier's execution for witchcraft approached, some nuns attempted to recant, led by the suddenly suicidal Jean, who showed up in court with a noose around her neck. These attempted retractions and Grenier's refusal to confess made little difference, and he was found guilty on all counts and burned at the stake, none of which stopped the diabolical attacks. These persisted another three years. Under the care of one of the exorcists, Jean began a new, increasingly rigorous daily regimen, including seven hours of self-flagellation, hair shirts, spiked girdle, sleeping on wooden planks, and sprinkling her food with bitter wormwood. She was rewarded with the appearance on her forehead of a bloody cross that dripped for three weeks. Another lingering demon, as prophesied, was said to have left three wounds in Jean's side as it exited and another, named Balaam, threatening to leave his name inscribed on her body if he left, was said to have been defeated by Jean's prayers to St. Joseph, leaving instead the name of the conquering saint on her wrist. Jean eventually fell gravely ill from these endless exorcisms and self-mortifications. Seemingly only hours from death, uh, she experienced a vision of St. Joseph, sliding his hand under her chemise to apply a restorative oil. And Behemoth, the very last demon, was on the run now, announcing that he would be forced from her should she dare to make a pilgrimage to the tomb of St. Francis of Sales. The 400-mile pilgrimage to the tomb, during which Behemoth did indeed depart, became a sort of triumphal procession, with tens of thousands coming out to see the famous nun, and touched the oily spots left by St. Joseph on the chemise she exhibited. Various nobles were said to have begged for a piece of this precious, greasy relic. The chemise ended up in a reliquary in the convent. In 1655, Jean died, and her head was removed and added to the display. A huge painting of the expulsion of Behemoth was commissioned and exhibited for 80 years until a bishop of more uh, progressive sentiments ordered it removed. In 1772, the convent was closed 
and the chemise, the painting, the mummified head all disappeared forever. A uh, final note, there is an urban legend shared to this day by the residents of Loudon, one having to do with Philippe Trinquant, with whom Garnier had the uh, illegitimate child that first tainted his reputation. When asked for her thoughts on the burning of her former lover, she said to have responded, It was all right, but I found the smell disagreeable. Demons exist whether you believe in them or not. Just be careful, Aaron. There are forces surrounding this trial. Emily, can you hear me? The clip you're hearing is from our final story, in a sense. It's uh, from the 2005 film... The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is based on the story of Annalisa Michel, a young Bavarian woman who died in 1976 after an exorcism. The film is relatively close to Michel's story in showing aspects of her psychiatric issues, exorcism, and the court trial of the priests, bishop, and family members responsible for her care. Uh, especially in the treatment of the aftermath, it's a bit more thoughtful than you might assume from the uh, very uh, Hollywood-style clip I played. Um, and for a version completely stripped of all the uh, horror movie bells and whistles, there's also the almost painfully thoughtful 2006 German film, Requiem. Early on, Michel was uh, diagnosed with epilepsy, which in some cases might be associated with psychosis. By the age of 16, she was reporting frightening hallucinations and was experiencing what we'd call night hag episodes, uh, feeling uh, pinned to her bed by a uh, menacing presence. From this age until her death, she was treated with medications for uh, seizures and psychosis and depression, and in 1970 was briefly hospitalized. None of this, however, was ultimately effective in relieving her torments. It wasn't until seven years in that the family asked their priest about the possibility of exorcism. Certainly, there may have been a measure of desperation involved as Michel's symptoms had quickly gotten much worse, but the nature of her behavior itself suggested a crisis of a religious nature. In 1973, while on a pilgrimage with her family to visit a Marian shrine in Italy, Michel began showing an aversion to religious objects and could not enter the shrine, claiming to her aunt that the earth was burning under her feet. This was particularly strange as Michel had previously been more than a little pious. In fact, her piety seemed to increase alongside the diabolical behaviors. During the course of all these events, her daily prayers, for instance, came to include 600 genuflections, resulting in torn knee ligaments. For this reason, and more I'll get to, I've included Michel in this episode is a close match to her religious counterparts in convents. 
she soon began destroying crosses, icons, and other devotional items. She began scratching and biting the walls, sometimes directing violence at others, like her sister, whom she was said to have thrown about the room like a toy. Mostly, however, it was a matter of self-harm. Her emaciated body was covered with scratches and cuts, and dark bruises surrounded her eyes, and she'd managed to knock out her own teeth. She ate flies and spiders, plunged her head in the toilet to drink urine, and was surrounded by a foul stench. Most damaging of all was her refusal or inability to eat or sleep. Her priest, Father Ernst Alt, brought all of this to the bishop, who ordered a minor exorcism as a sort of test. During this, Alt supposedly confirmed that through diabolical intervention, Michel was able to discern tap water from holy water and speak in languages unknown to her, supposedly correcting uh, Alt's uh, faulty Latin at times. Within weeks, the bishop enlisted another priest, Father Arnold Renz, to proceed with the full Roman ritual of exorcism. Within roughly a year, 67 sessions, lasting up to four hours, were conducted once or twice weekly. Michel spoke to Renz in a variety of voices, claiming to be Lucifer, Judas, Cain, Nero, and even Hitler, or demons claiming to be those uh, infernal characters. Rather chilling tapes were made during the process, and they're what you've been hearing in the background. Though Father Renz asserted that the exorcism had been successful in freeing Michel's soul, months of self-starvation claimed the poor girl's life shortly after the exorcisms ended. As mentioned, a courtroom drama followed. Charges against the grieving parents were dropped, but the priest received uh, six months later suspended for neglecting to obtain medical support throughout the period of the exorcisms. And there's another side to the story that's uh, less known. The notion that Annalisa Michel not only managed to hold to her faith during diabolical possessions, but that these attacks by demons were somehow integral to a special form of holiness, that she was a a sort of saint. In fact, there was an effort uh, made to prove this by Catholic standards by digging up the girl's body shortly before the trial to see if it might be incorrupt. A Carmelite nun claiming visionary contact with Annalisa had uh, contacted her parents with the message that her body must be exhumed on a certain date, uh, offering the excuse that the body had been rushed to burial with the, an inadequate coffin. The parents succeeded in arranging the disinterment on the appointed day. The event was a feeding frenzy for the media, but delivered no miracles. The body was said to be normally decomposed and Annalise's parents were emphatically advised against a viewing. Uh, Father Renz seems to have been uh, more forcefully barred from entering the mortuary where the uh, body was sequestered. But none of this could kill the notion that there was something saintly in Michel's suffering. 
that she exemplified the Catholic concept of the victim's soul discussed in our last episode. That is, an individual embracing intense suffering as a means of penance on behalf of others. This was uh, Michio's own understanding, as she told her family a month before the uh, traumatic events that the Blessed Virgin had appeared to her, declaring, It is necessary to do penance for priests, for the youth, and for your country. She was allegedly given three days to decide if she would accept this burden, and was later uh, granted uh, prophetic knowledge of its outcome. She said to have told her family, The months of May and June were going to be bad, but that July would bring relief. Not long before her death in July uh, 1976, her mother reported seeing stigmata develop on her daughter's hands and feet, and Michel reported the invisible presence of the stigmatics uh, Padre Pio and Teresa Neumann in the room during the exorcisms. So, in this way, this story resembles our first story of Maria von Mölle, at once experiencing these diabolical fits, vomiting of horse hair and pins, and uh, revered at the same time as a stigmatic marked by God. Annalise's grave is today a place of pilgrimage for many who, like her family and priests involved, came to regard her as a self-sacrificing victim soul. Now, tempting as it is to end the episode at a grave... I have one more update on the story. The fate of the home where these diabolical fits occurred. Known as the uh, Teufelhaus, the Devil House, the domicile was left standing empty after the uh, Michels moved out, as no buyer brave enough to take up residence there came forward. Then, on June 6, 2013, the Devil House went up in flames. Police suggested arson or perhaps candles left by trespassing teens playing at satanic rituals, but local news reports at the time referenced rumors of individuals seeing faces or figures in the clouds of smoke rising from the burning building. And the date itself was not without significance. If the internet numerologists were correct, something truly apocalyptic had happened. The event, after all, had happened on the sixth day of the sixth month and if you're looking for patterns the year 2013 2013. well it's just a matter of addition but uh, I'll leave you to do the math I hope everyone's been enjoying these uh, shows we put out and that you uh, might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends we particularly appreciate reviews as those are the best way to uh, raise the show's profile on Apple Podcasts and other outlets. If you've left a review, by all means, let me know and we'll give you a little shout out. Uh, our website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group and Twitter and our new Instagram account, along with uh, show notes with plenty of uh, images and video links to um, the film trailers and music and clips uh, used in the program music and sound design otherwise are all original for the show you can also find our donor link on the uh, website uh, patreon members have a choice of rewards including exclusive access to uh, extra elements that go into 
the making of the podcast. That includes digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, the uh, soundscapes you hear in the background, and my uh, Krampus book, as well as a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson suitable for framing and adulation. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. Special thanks to Laura Mulligan, August Block, Jeremy Floyd, and Yasmina Kocherek, I hope I got that right, for becoming new patrons. And to Maria Malakote, a busy mom weaver, and ugly Shyla, who have recently posted show reviews or endorsements. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening.